As you return to your seats, <clears throat> would you take your Bibles with me and open to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, as we continue our study through the book of Revelation, we're now at the 20th of 27 messages through the book, so we're uh, getting closer. This morning I do want to take up two chapters. Uh, you'll see why as we read it, these uh, chapters hold together. We've seen a uh, a series of seven, seven seals opening, and then seven trumpets, and now seven bowls. They begin in chapter 15, verse 1, and then the conclusion is at the end of chapter 16. So I, I do want to read uh, the entirety of both chapters. Um, they're not incredibly long. So would you stand as you take your Bibles and open to Revelation 15 and hear the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 15 and 16. As he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the ten of witness was in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out His bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out His bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. 
For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon, the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, as it seems we have said for weeks now, Lord, we confess again, your word is sometimes hard. Hard to understand, hard to apply, hard to live out. So we ask for your help. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. Help us to see, to hear, to understand, to love your word, to obey it in our lives. Lord, by your Spirit, let this Word be a seed falling in our hearts that brings forth fruit of obedience in our lives. Lord, if there be anyone here that does not know Christ as Lord, as we consider again final judgment, Lord, we pray today that your Spirit would move them to flee from the coming wrath and fall in faith at the feet of the Lamb who lived and who died and who was raised. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Somewhere around 1500 B.C., there was a, a nation of people who were being enslaved and oppressed by a nation that was stronger than them. They were being made uh, ruthlessly to work hard and, and service, sometimes uh, being given tasks that, uh, that were demeaning others that seemed almost impossible in the conditions in which they were being made to work. They were being oppressed and persecuted. In fact, in light of the way we often use the word oppressed or persecuted to mean light and menial things sometimes, it, it hardly even seems fitting. One of the things that the nation over them was doing was they were afraid that they were growing too large. The enslaved people, the oppressed people, they were, they were afraid that they were growing too large, that they were growing too powerful. So what they decided to do is they instructed their midwives who delivered their children that if they delivered an infant baby boy, they were to take that infant boy and throw him into the Nile River so that he was killed. It was a terribly violent and oppressive situation. And so this people, Israel, they cried out to the Lord to deliver them. And the Lord raised up one Moses who, who came to, to deliver Israel, to deliver God's people out of slavery, out of Egyptian 
oppressive, oppression and persecution. And not only did God send Moses, but with Moses, he sent all kinds of plagues, just signs of God's wrath of his judgment against the Egyptians. Uh, the plagues were that God turned the Nile to blood. He sent frogs into the land, gnats and flies, locusts. He killed their livestock. He brought boils upon the people, sent a hailstorm, caused darkness to cover the land. And finally, the last of the plagues, he killed their firstborn. All across the land, every firstborn of the Egyptians died that night. And finally, Pharaoh, uh, the leader of the Egyptians, decided he would let the Israelites go. He would let them free from their slavery, let them be free from their oppression. And even that was only temporary. Uh, after he sent them out and they, and they were going on their way, uh, Israel uh, was soon pursued by Pharaoh, pursued by the Egyptians, and it looked like all was lost. They were backed up to the sea, the Red Sea, and there was no way around it. And the Egyptians were coming, and it looked like they were closed in, they were about to be killed. And if you know the Exodus, you know the story well. The Lord instead works this great miracle, and He parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites were able actually to cross the sea with the parted sea on either side of them, going through on dry land to the other side. And then when the Egyptians came through, the Lord called the waters back onto the Egyptians so that the Egyptians who had murdered the Hebrew boy babies by throwing them to a watery grave in the Nile River were themselves drowned by the waters of the Red Sea crushing back over them. And the Israelites did not, did not, stop and mourn or soberly reflect on the death of their enemy oppressors behind them. Rather, they sang a song. We're told that as the Egyptian's body was washed up on the shore, that they sang a song, a song that celebrated their salvation and a song that celebrated the judgment of their enemies. In fact, these themes in this song just, just repeat again and again and again. Neither one of them seeming to be stronger than the other. I'll read to you part of this song they sang from Exodus chapter 15. They sang, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast them into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I'll draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That picture right there, that scene, of God delivering Israel out of oppressive persecution and slavery, delivering them so that they are saved and their enemies were destroyed. That the enemy's judgment stood as a backdrop for their salvation. This became the standard throughout the Bible to be a foreshadowing or a type of the salvation that was to come. 
throughout the whole Bible, it's this event that God is referring to back. They're looking back and saying, just as God did this. It would, it would, be, it would be repeated again as the people again would become captives of another nation, the Babylonians. And God says, just as you speak of the time that I delivered you out of Egypt, so you're going to speak of the time that I'm going to deliver you out of Babylon. But it's this picture that foreshadows judgment and salvation to come. And it's probably a picture that's a little uncomfortable for us. It would seem weird, I think, for people to think that a group would get together and celebrate and sing a song about people being drowned in the sea. But that may be because we've simply not known persecution on true great a level. What Exodus does is it gives us a shadow and a type that I think the fulfillment of that shadow and type then comes to us in Revelation 15 and 16. As you heard the reading of Revelation 15 and 16, something you probably noticed were these repeated refrains of the Exodus. It sounds like the plagues in many ways. We hear about water becoming blood, uh, frogs, and, and darkness. In fact, we have here a picture in Revelation 15 of the people singing a song. Explicitly, we're told that they sing the song of Moses, the song I just read to you. What's going on in Revelation 15 and 16 is the Lord is telling His persecuted people the salvation I foreshadowed back in Exodus is the salvation I'm going to certainly and surely bring to you. Revelation 15 and 16 is God's word to His persecuted people. Your salvation is sure and certain. Because of that, we shouldn't be surprised that Revelation 15 and 16 talks a lot about the judgment of God's enemies. These are not distinct realities. The salvation of God's people always has as its backdrop the judgment of God's enemies. This is why Revelation seems to end on such a note of repeated news about the coming wrath of God. It's because he is repeatedly saying to his people, your salvation is coming, and it is sure and certain. So what I want to do in Revelation 15, as we see this picture, I think, which is a picture of final judgment, is I just want to show you uh, the, the insights I think we learn about God's final judgment. In fact, this is how I think Revelation 15 and 16 functions. I don't think these images and these two chapters are given to us so that we might put some kind of timeline together about how God's judgments are going to unfold. That is, I don't think we're supposed to read, for example, chapter 16 and say, okay, first he's going to do something to the earth, and then he's going to do something to the sea, and then to the rivers, and then to the sun, and then there will be this, and then there will be that. I don't think it's given to us so that we might see some kind of ordered timeline I think instead of seeing these elements as one taking place, then the other taking place, then the other taking place, instead of that, I think they're all simply showing different aspects of God's judgment. Because of that, I don't think as well that we're to look at these and press them literally. That is, I don't think we're supposed to read these chapters and say, okay, so the way God's going to bring judgment on the earth is He's going to make the sun really, really hot. And it's going to scorch people on the earth so that we, we engage our minds and begin to think about how is it that God could do that and come up with some crazy theory about global warming and final judgment, right? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Revelation 15 and 16 is speaking to us about the nature of God's judgment and as the rest of the book does, in highly symbolic terms. 
Let me show you one reason why, why I'm utterly convinced that these chapters work the way the other chapters do in, which they're, in that they're highly symbolic. Look at chapter 16, verse 16. In chapter 16, starting in verse 12, John writes about this. All the, the kings of the earth are gathering. It's as if all the believers from all over the earth are gathering for a war against the Lamb. And John tells us this, this place where they're gathering. Verse 16 of chapter 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, that's not a term that's, that's uncommon. We hear that referenced a lot. Oftentimes people reference the end of the world, the end of all things, as Armageddon, this, this war to end all wars or whatever, the final judgment of God. Well, literally... In, in Hebrew there, that word Armageddon would be translated uh, the Mount of Megiddo, the Mountain of Megiddo. And that would make sense because Megiddo was a place where a lot of wars were fought. So you could say, well then, John wants us to read this literally. Look, he's telling us the battle will be fought at Megiddo. There are two problems with that, though. One of them is that Megiddo wasn't a mountain. It was a plain. In fact, a vast plain. This is one of the reasons it was well-suited for war. It was a place people could gather on this plain and fight. So does John not know his geography? Of course he does. Let me show you one other thing, though. If John says here that the battle is going to be fought at the Mount of Megiddo, Armageddon, then look at what he says in chapter 20 of Revelation. Turn there. In chapter 20, we have very similar imagery. Is this, this is the, the final battle between uh, the unbelievers and Satan against the Lamb. Starting in verse 7, we hear about Satan coming out to deceive the nations, gathering them from the four corners of the earth, gathering them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. Listen to verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now what city is that? Well, that's obviously Jerusalem. Jerusalem's continually referred to as the, beloved, as the beloved city. So the question then is, okay, was Megiddo in Jerusalem? The answer is no. Megiddo was a two days journey from Jerusalem. Uh, so then, did John just make a mistake? I mean, did he miss the geography and forget that Megiddo was a plain and not a mountain? thinking it was a mountain. Did, did he forget that Megiddo and Jerusalem aren't in the same place, but they're in different places? No. What these realities are showing us is that John doesn't want us to take these literally. What he's saying is, just as there were battles fought at Megiddo that were extreme, so there will be another battle that will be similar to those. And as the people often in history would march against God's people gathered in Jerusalem, so in the same way he will surround and gather and march against God's people in the end. You see, he doesn't want us to press these images literally. If you press them literally, they don't make sense. But what John is doing here is he's showing us that these are symbols. He is showing us truth. So we don't want to approach Revelation 15 and 16 trying to press all the elements and figure out exactly how in the world water can be turned into blood and the sun might scorch inhabitants. Rather, we want to read these chapters saying, what do these images tell us about the nature of God's final wrath? And I want to lay out four things for us this morning that I think they do show us. The first one is this. The day when God will bring final judgment is certain, and it is coming. The day when God will bring final judgment is certain, and it's coming. 
Chapter 15, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, the great and, amaz- great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Now to this point, we've seen continually this message that God is in this entire age, from the time that He's ascended until the time that He will come again. Throughout this entire age, the people, uh, unbelievers, uh, are being shown His wrath in a deluded way. Remember last week we talked about the fact that God said His final judgment will be like wine poured out in full strength. Because you could dilute wine, you could cut it with water. Which is if all of the wrath of God people are experiencing in this age is cut wine, diluted wine, diluted wrath. And yet God is showing it throughout this entire age. People are are, are feeling the presence of the wrath of God in some ways. The fact that, that unbelievers are living in the world that God has cursed because of Adam's sin is a sign of God's wrath against them. When unbelievers are given over to their sin so that it is destroying them and yet they can't let go of it, that's a sign of God's wrath. But it's deluded wrath. Look back at uh, Revelation chapter 8. The way that God showed us that His wrath in this age would be deluded, that it wouldn't be His complete wrath, is by giving us the image of it just being a third. Revelation chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. A third of the trees were burned up. A third, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and, and all the green grass was burned up. Look at verses 8 and 9. A second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. That was, that was John's way of making clear what I'm talking about is not God's complete final wrath, but just diluted wrath showing in this age. But look what happens In Revelation 16, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. You see, this is showing us that this is God's final wrath and it's complete. God is come. there's coming a day, God, in other words, God will not continue to say, people are only going to see, receive my deluded wrath for eternity. No, there's coming a wet day when people will receive God's full and final and complete wrath. And it'll be over the whole earth. I think that's what we're supposed to see in these first four bowls. Chapter 16, verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Chapter 16, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. Chapter 16, verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. You see what's going on there? Earth, salt water, fresh water, sky. The imagery is God is judging all the earth. And this is his final judgment. In fact, just as chapter 15 begins saying, for with this the wrath of God is finished, we read in chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And then there was lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, imagery that is always present in the book of Revelation when we're talking about final judgment. 
So the first point I want to make is simply this. I think it's probably obvious. But God's final judgment is certain and it is coming. There is going to be a day. Don't think God will delay His final judgment forever. He won't. I don't know if that day is today or tomorrow or a thousand years from now. And you don't know either. But the day is coming. The day when God will bring His final judgment is certain and it is coming. John wanted us to know that. This is what the Lord wanted His people then and His people now to know. A second truth. That day of final judgment will mean the fulfillment of our salvation. That day of final judgment will mean the fulfillment of our salvation. In chapter 15, there's a break. You, you see it in the text. Verse, verse 1 says, you have these seven angels with seven plagues, and with them the wrath of God is finished. So obviously they're going to pour out the wrath of God. And then you pick up in verse 5, you, you'd almost expect verse 5 to come right after verse 1. It just reads that. These seven angels gathered. They have the wrath of God. Verse 5, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the ten of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels the seven golden bowls full of wrath who lives forever and ever. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. You have this scene then of final wrath is about to be poured out. In fact, chapter 16 begins, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. But right in the middle of it, between verse 1 and verse 5 of Revelation 15, we read of this image of the people of God gathering and, and praising God. Verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Those who had conquered the beast and its image, the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. We've seen throughout the book of Revelation, to conquer the beast, to conquer the dragon, to conquer the false prophet, to conquer means to endure faithfully in Christ, even to the point of death. So those who endured in faith gather and they sing the song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Who will not glorify your name? All the nations worship you. What are they doing? They're celebrating the reality that with the final judgment of God's enemies comes the final salvation of God's people. Again, I, I've said it numerous times, but when we think of salvation, we often don't think of judgment. We want to talk about one or the other. So are we talking about judgment or are we talking about salvation? We get real excited to talk about salvation. We don't get real excited to talk about judgment. But in the Bible, these two realities always come together. The first promise of salvation in the Bible, in Genesis 3, is a word of judgment to the serpent. He is, his head is going to be crushed. Think of, think of Israel's salvation through David. What happened on the day when David delivered the Israelites from the oppression of the Philistine giant named Goliath? Goliath was hit in the head with a rock and his head cut off. Right? It was the judgment of God's enemies that meant the salvation of God's people. Think about the book of Judges. God raises up one to be a judge, to be a deliverer, and He brings salvation to God's people. How does He bring salvation to God's people? By slaughtering their enemies. What was Samson's final act 
as he's tied to these pillars in this building with Philistines all around him, he asked God for strength so that he might press on these pillars and bring down the building, killing, the text says, more Philistines in his death than he did in his life. Why is that celebrated? This mass murderer. Because by judging God's enemies, he was saying, you, Israel, are free. It's the same image we saw with the Egyptians being drowned in the Nile. God was saying to his people, you don't have to fear your oppressors anymore. You are free. And on that final day, when God brings his judgment, and there are no more enemies, there is no more Satan, there is no more sin, there is no more death, Every enemy of God is destroyed. God will be sending a message to us loud and clear. Your salvation is sure and certain. So don't read the end of Revelation saying it just, it looks like it's all about wrath and I wish it were about salvation. It is about salvation because it is about wrath. It's about the salvation of God's people through the judgment of their enemies. That final judgment will mean the fulfillment of our salvation. A third truth, then, concerning the final judgment of God. Those whom God judges, by that I mean in final judgment, those whom God judges will continue in their rebellion to the bitter end. Those whom God judges, and I mean judges in final judgment, on that final day when God's enemies are fully and finally judged, fully receiving His wrath, those whom God judges will continue in the rebellion until the bitter end. Now we saw this in the Exodus, didn't we? This was a foreshadowing. Remember? God's bringing about these plagues one after one and each time you think that Pharaoh would finally go, enough is enough! I mean, the Nile turning the blood was bad, but, but now we have these boils, or, or now we have darkness, or, or, or the frogs, or the locusts, or the gnats, or the hailstorm. I mean, enough is enough. Fine, I repent. God, we're going to follow you. We're going to obey you. But what does the text say happens? His heart grows harder. The judgment of God, far from bringing Pharaoh a tender heart that wants to obey the Lord, Pharaoh finds his heart hardened at the Lord's judgment. Even when Pharaoh loses his firstborn son in the final plague, it's not as if his heart grows tender and he releases Israelites. He releases Israelites only to pursue them in the end. He remains in his rebellion all the way to the point of the Nile River crushing down on his head and drowning him. What we find is that those who are going to face God's final judgment in the end very much act the same way. Though everything around them should be screaming to them, Repent! If he can bring frogs and gnats, then he can kill your firstborn sons. Everything around them, like Pharaoh, should say, Repent! Though you realize you're fighting a losing battle. But instead of any kind of rational thinking, instead of them repenting and, and bowing the knee before Jesus Christ and avoiding His wrath, what they do is they're going to continue in the rebellion all the way to the bitter end. We see this in a few places in the text. After, after chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, uh, show us this plague number 1, plague number, or bowl number 1, bowl 2, bowl 3, bowl 4, where, where God's judging the whole earth, the, the, the earth and the sea and the rivers and springs of waters and the sun. Listen to the way they respond in verse 9. I mean, you would think at this point in this imagery, if God's doing all of this, finally they would bow the knee and realize they can't face Him. But look at verse 9. 
They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. It wasn't as if they didn't know God was judging them. They know God's judgment. They know God's wrath. It's not enough to move their hearts. In verse 10, the angel pours out his bowl and there's darkness so that the beast and his kingdom is plunged into darkness. And the text says, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and repented. No. They gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. All the way to the bitter end, verse 20 of chapter 16. I mean, notice this is the whole earth now being judged. Every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Now, one reason, one reason, though you would think rationally, if people know the wrath of God is coming, they should turn from it. If they sense the wrath of God in any sense, they should turn from it and repent. But all, one reason why people don't act rationally, but actually sin, face consequences, and continue raging, which, which is told us in the Old Testament, just, I'll just show you this verse quickly. Look at, look at Proverbs chapter 19. This, this verse as much as any other verse, just gives us insight about the way that, that mankind works. Because we know this. We've seen it. We've seen it in unbelievers. At times we see even believers who run into sin, they do this. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin... I'll just stop there and contemplate that part of the verse for a second. So what is bringing about ruin in this man's life and his destruction? His own folly, right? His own foolishness, his own rebellion. So you would think that man would work so that he would go, man, I'm such a fool. I've chosen to do this stupid thing and it's brought ruin to my life. But look at what the verse says. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. That's how sin works. I, I've watched it happen again and again. I know of a, a sister in Christ whom I sat with and she was just getting ready to go on a date with a man who did not profess faith in Christ. And so I talked to her and I said, please don't do it. I'm using her, I could use myself countless examples. But on this occasion, I was just pleading with her, please don't, please don't do this. And she said, just a date. I said, well, don't go on a date. You know, you don't need to be yoked with an unbeliever. God tells you this. So why date him? If you know you're not going to marry him, so that you can't do it, right? And she went on the date, and that date resulted in marriage. And that marriage resulted in great turmoil in her life for years. As one who professed faith in Christ, living with an unbeliever, and one who did not love Christ, and and was a man who just followed Satan in life. It was a terrible marriage. And when it finally ended and all the destruction of the marriage was there and they were no longer married, what she 
reflected in her life was, I am angry at God. When a man's folly brings his ruin, he rages against the Lord. It would be like me telling one of my children, don't go out into the street. If you go out into the street, it'll be bad. Go, if you go out into the street, I'll have to discipline you, give you a spanking. Please, that's how serious it is. Don't go out into the street. I love you. Don't go out into the street. And then they go out into the street, and they get hit by a car, and it doesn't kill them, but it injures them greatly. And so they walk up on the front porch of my house, maimed and, and hurt because they've been out in the street, and they say to me, I am angry at you because I've been hurt in the street. How foolish that we would rebel against God. Meet what God tells us will happen and then rage against Him. But that's what's happening here. They're getting the very thing God told them they would get. Rebel against me. You'll face my wrath. They're facing His wrath and they're raging against God. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we act so irrationally? We find one answer in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. So these spirits, these demonic spirits, they're coming out of the mouth, so it's a sign that they're being deceived with words. And here's what these demonic spirits are doing. Verse 14. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Jesus reminds us, verse 15, He's coming. Be ready for it. Why are they gathering? Why are they gathering to fight against the Lamb when they can't beat Him? Because Satan and his demons are deceiving them and leading them astray. One of the reasons why, though it is so utterly irrational, one of the reasons why people can be presented with the coming wrath of God that they should flee from, that should bring them to, to bow their, their, their knees and repent and cry out for mercy, one of the reasons they continue in their rebellion is because it's not just them. They are under the power of the enemy. Ephesians 2.2 says that not only are we dead in our sins, but we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan actually blinds the mind of the unbeliever so that he's deceived. So you and I, Paul says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So one of the reasons, your unbelieving friend, that you're telling about the coming wrath of God, one of the reasons why, though it's so irrational, they'll hear of the wrath of God and not repent. They'll feel the wrath of God. They can point to places in their lives where they suffer the wrath of God and they won't repent. It's because Satan is deceiving them. And they're bound in their sin and rebellion. So this has two implications for us then, I think. If those whom God judges will continue in the rebellion to the bitter end because of their own rebellion and because of the influence and deception of Satan himself, this has a couple influence, implications for us. One, an implication for the believer. This is why we must preach the gospel. This is why we must preach the gospel. 
the reason people aren't converted isn't because a really good argument hasn't been made to them. The reason why your unbelieving friend isn't professing faith in Christ isn't because somebody hasn't come along and explained how all of the world works. They're not saying if you could get the best scientist, maybe that would do it. If you could get this, that would do it. When you evangelize, you don't have to worry about having all the answers because the reason why the unbeliever is unrepentant is not because they don't have answers. They know the truth and they're suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. The reason the unbeliever is not repentant is because they're dead in their sins and under the power of the enemy. And the only thing, the only thing that can deliver them from the oppression of Satan and bring life to their dead hearts is the gospel. That's the only thing. The gospel alone is the power of God to salvation. So don't fret over, I've got to figure out all the answers in life. I've got to know what this person is going to say. If they ask me a question, I've got to have all the answers. Your weapon is the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Don't be deceived. Your fight is not with the intellect. Your fight is against rebellion. And the gospel alone breaks through the hard heart of rebellion. So you just preach the gospel again and again and again. You plead with them, believe and repent in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. An implication for the unbeliever. Because those unbelievers who are going to face final judgment are going to continue in their rebellion to the bitter end, being deceived by Satan, if right now you're an unbeliever, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and you understand what I'm saying, if you understand the wrath of God is against you, and you understand that God has made a way for you to be reconciled to Him so that you don't have to face the wrath of God, and the way God's done that is by sending His Son into the world who took on flesh and lived a perfect life that you or I didn't live, that He died on the cross to pay for the penalty, pay for the sins of everyone who would believe in Him, that He was raised on the third day so that if you'll turn from your sins and just trust in Him alone for your righteousness, for your hope of forgiveness, that not only will you be forgiven, but that His righteousness will be credited to your account. So you'll stand before God on the final day of judgment and you'll be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ so that you won't endure God's wrath, but you'll know the blessing of His presence for eternity. If you understand that, and there's any inkling in your heart that says, I want to turn and believe, please do it! One of the designs of the enemy, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is the enemy blinds the eyes of the unbeliever so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ. Now you know this as believers, don't you? We'll sing of the gospel and you just go, it's glorious! And the unbeliever can't see it. And one reason they can't see it is because the enemy's blinding their eyes. So what I'm saying to you this morning is this. One reason you should repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is because you can. If there's any sense in which this morning you're desiring to turn, it's because the Holy Spirit is doing work in your heart. It's because the gospel message is coming to you in a powerful way and turning your heart away from the grip of Satan so that you might be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So if there's anything in you, please do not continue to fight. Do not be hardened in your rebellion. But turn and place your faith in Christ. Your rebellion today may well continue on until the final day of judgment. And I pray that it doesn't. I pray that the Lord might open your eyes so that you would repent and believe. Truth number four concerning the judgment of God. 
the judgment of God will be praiseworthy and just. Yes, we talked about it last week. We see it again this week. God's wrath will be eternal torment. Eternal torment. No rest day and night. God's final wrath will be furiously violent. It will be terrible. Nobody wants to face the wrath of God in the end. And yet it is praiseworthy and it is just. Look how they praise God. Look at chapter 15, verse 3. They say, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They've shed the blood of the saints and prophets. You've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Verse 7, And I heard the altar, which may be a reference to the martyrs under the altar, and I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Yes, the final wrath of God will be terrible, but it is not extreme. It's not over the top. It's not uncalled for. When you have rebelled against an infinitely glorious God and spurned His Son, an infinitely terrible punishment in hell is fitting. As believers, yes, yes, God's wrath is terrible, but we do not have to be ashamed of it. We do not have to be embarrassed when we talk about it. We can warn the unbeliever of the wrath to come and say, and you know what? The wrath is just. It's just and it's praiseworthy. This is why the saints in the end praise God. This is why the angels declare, this is just judgment. When the unbeliever is thrown into a lake of fire forever, that's just punishment. Just as when Pharaoh was drowned in the Nile River. That was just. But then let's end just by asking this question. Well, if that judgment was just, if that night when the Lord passed through the land of Egypt and killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians, and it was just punishment, then what made the Israelites different? Why weren't their firstborn killed? Were they better than the Egyptians? Hardly. Had they done enough to deserve God's wrath? Certainly. Would God have been just to say, I'm killing all your firstborn too? Absolutely. So why were their firstborn saved? It wasn't because they had done enough good, is it? It wasn't because they were just so much better than the Egyptians, was it? The reason their Israelite children were spared is because they had the blood of the Lamb on their doors, didn't they? And as believers this morning, it's good for us to recognize the reason we're going to avoid the wrath of God in the end is not because we're better than the people who will face it. It's not because we don't deserve it. We've sinned plenty to deserve it. One sin would have been sufficient. We've sinned on numerous occasions. It's not because we're better than them or have a ground of boasting over them, is it? But it's because the blood of the Lamb has been applied to us. I think this is one reason why the Israelites sing with fervor. Because they understood the punishment they just witnessed 
was the punishment they deserved. But it's the punishment they had been spared from because God covered them with the blood of the Lamb. So this morning then, it's fitting for us to respond to this picture of God's final judgment in a couple of ways. As believers, it's fitting for us to come to this table and give thanks. That night, after God passed over the home of the Israelites, sparing their firstborn, He told them, I want you to eat a meal continually and remember what I have done so that you have been spared. In the same way, Jesus gave us this meal and told us, eat it continually, drink of it continually until He comes so that we might remember Christ's death for us. One thing we're going to do is we're going to take a moment of silence and come to the table. And as we do so, it's proper for us to give thanks. God, thank You that I deserve final wrath, but that Jesus Christ has saved me from it. The blood of the Lamb has been shed for me. It's also appropriate for, for us as believers to then fervently say, God, please now give me boldness and give me courage to open my mouth and speak the gospel to my unbelieving neighbors. Because if they don't believe, they're going to face God's final wrath. And we've been commanded, as Aaron quoted earlier, commanded to go to all the nations, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them. This morning should be a time in which we give thanks and a time in which we say to the Lord, give us boldness to preach the gospel. If you're an unbeliever this morning, please let your response to this picture be not continuing in your rebellion and cursing God. But this morning, would you finally repent of your sins and turn and place your faith in Jesus Christ? If you'd like to talk to me or one of your neighbors here more about that, we would love to talk to you. But please, this morning, place your faith in Christ. Let's now take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table this morning.